Well, you guys, good morning. How y'all doing? All right. You guys waking up? I, uh, I'm online. I got to get my little toy set up here. Um, I'm on the, uh, the Whiting community board um, on Facebook, even though uh, I don't live here yet. And so I saw that your power went out last night. All right, so how many here were like up for like three hours in the middle of the night trying to freak? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and you're here. Holy cow. Thank you. Uh, and for those of you online joining us at home, welcome to. Thank you for joining us to worship today. You know, uh, people have been asking me how I'm dealing with 2020. Um, and because, uh, I mean, let's, let's be honest, this year's a lot, right? Um, this year's a lot. Uh, but people have been asking me how I'm dealing with it. And I'll be honest, at first, kind of the first half of this year, uh, for me, it was a lot of fun. Um, it didn't hurt that uh, I actually, uh, my wife and my son are both like fierce introverts. And so like telling them that they had to stay home, they're like, woo, <laughs> awesome, no choices, awesome, we get to stay home. Uh, me and my daughter, however, are social butterflies, extroverted, high energy. Um, so at least we had them. But after about six months of, of that, um, uh, they've started to get annoyed with me and my daughter because we're just like, what about friends? What about, what about going out? What about, can we go out to eat? Can we, like, ah. Um, so I'm spending, I'll be honest, I'm getting to that point where, like, I'm getting fed up. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I find myself um, in the morning, uh, they call it doom scrolling, where you just pick up your smartphone and just start, uh, that happened, that happened, that happened. It feels a bit like that scene in Star Trek or whatever where, you know, the captain sits in the chair and goes, damage report. I feel like I'm doing that every morning now when I wake up, just pulling out my phone. But I have to consistently remind myself that our God is a good God. Amen? Amen. That no matter what annoyances or no matter what stuff that we're dealing with here and inconveniences that we're dealing with, our God is still good. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right? So no matter what we deal with, you know, I have to stay home. I can't see my friends as much. Or, or I, have, I, I hate masks. They're so annoying. But I have to wear these things everywhere I go. You know, all these things. I, I get it. It's annoying. It's frustrating. It beats me down. But at the end of the day, there is still an immense reason to celebrate. Because we have an amazing God. And no matter what we face today, it's nothing compared to the history of the church. Am I right? Man, the church has survived for 2,000 years through plagues and wars and inquisitions and, and, and everything. I think we can take sitting at home and watching Netflix for a little while, right? Yeah. So how am I dealing with 2020? I don't know. Ask me in 2021, right? <laughs> Well, hey, guys, um, we've been doing this sermon series. Last week, we kicked it off. We're calling it Lift My Eyes, and we're, uh, we are in, uh, kind of encouraging one another to lift our eyes from these distractions and these, uh, uh, the doom scrolling of our 2020 life and lift our eyes to what really matters. And the words, this concept of lifting our eyes actually comes from the opening lines of Psalm 121, which speaks directly to the uncertainty that seems to surround us in the world right now. So here, real quick, I challenged you guys last week. Raise your hand if you spent any time this week in, in Psalm 121. Rock on. You guys are awesome. 
Well, it's not over yet. We've had two more weeks in this series. I challenge you to spend some time this week reading Psalm 121. Even if it's just five minutes here or there, pop it on your audio book or pop a new version into your car or whatever. Listen to it, read it. Spend some time meditating on the words of Psalm 121. Because this psalm, this psalm speaks so clearly to this feeling of uncertainty that we have in today's season. So just take some time. I'm going to read it to you here real quick. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. So, yeah, amen. I love that image of, I lift my eyes into the mountains. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Because so often, we, we get caught up in the muck. We get caught up in the distractions of this world. We get caught up in the election. We get caught up in the COVID stuff. We get caught up in whatever. But we lift our eyes up to the mountains. Where does our help truly come from? And so this series has been all about kind of looking at ways that God makes that hope known to us. Last week, we talked about lifting our eyes towards the new identity that we have in Jesus. That how Jesus, being God himself, came to earth and claimed you as his child. And how that identity completely, completely overshines, outshines any other identity we might give ourselves. So we talked about how Jesus is that source of hope. This week, we're going to look at how God has chosen to communicate much of that promise to us. We're going to ask the question, can we trust the Bible? Because if we're going to talk about lifting our eyes to the hope of Jesus, lifting our eyes to the hope of God, this book becomes a beacon. Amen. Amen. I like that. So... We're going to ask those questions. We actually, we're going to ask a couple questions here. Uh, question one is, uh, why do we have all these versions of the Bible? Question two is, can we really trust the Bible? And question three, um, sorry, is, is the Bible still relevant? Because I get so many questions about this. In fact, I, I, I was having a conversation just this last week where I heard... Um, you know, every so often you get people that are just like, how do you trust this? It's a 2,000-year-old book or a 3,000-year-old book or a 4,000-year-old book, depending on where your historical context is. Um, New Testament's 2,000 years old. Um, and I get a lot of questions like, how can you devote your life to a book? It's like, well, one, I don't devote my life to a book. I devote my life to a God. This is just his letter to us. Um, so just real quick, this is in my notes, but this is not God. We don't worship this. This is a book, this is a reference material about God, but it's awesome. Um, but every so often I get a comment that it just kind of makes you think, and I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, so this conversation I was having this last week, I had somebody actually ask me how I can devote all of my time and energy into studying 
what he called the Bronze Age Shepherd's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> now, now, obviously, that's not just what this is, but I thought that was funny. I'm just, like, just going to call it funny for what it is. That was funny. But that's how the world sees this. And likely, that's how many of us see it sometimes, too. We struggle with that. How do we devote ourselves to words that are 2,000 year, years old, right? I mean, after all, I'm holding an NIV version. That's the version that you see under your seats right now. But you also have like ESV and King James Version and the New Living Translation. So what's with all these translations? How can we be devoted to the teachings of a single book if we can't even agree on what the single book says, right? Let me talk to you a little bit about the Bible. Now, uh, just heads up, I am a nerd when it comes to language. So for those of you out there that don't like talking about language, bear with me, okay? Every sermon I preach is not going to be on language translation, I promise. But today, I get to talk about what I get excited about, and I get excited a lot about language and translation and stuff. But so anyway, let me talk a little bit about this. Contrary to popular belief, this book was not originally written in English. We know that, right? Yeah, God did not write this book in English. This book in its original form was actually written in three different languages. And first of all, this isn't one book. It's a library. It's a whole bunch of books. But those books were actually generally written in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament is written in uh, what's called language that's different than modern Hebrew. Uh, it's pronounced a little differently, or at least we think, because no one actually pronounces biblical Hebrew anymore. We don't really know what it sounds like. But it was written in this old form of Hebrew that we call biblical Hebrew. It was also, there are chunks of the Old Testament that were originally written in a language called Aramaic, which I mentioned briefly last week. That was the spoken language that Jesus and his contemporaries would have spoken at the time. But that's the Old Testament. The New Testament was written in a language called Koine Greek. Um, Koine Greek was the common Greek. That's what Koine means, common. The common Greek that was spoken by most of the Roman Empire. Okay, so it's like, that was the popular language of the day. Um, so when we're reading this, every book that we're reading has to be translated from one of these ancient languages into our modern English language. Now, raise your hand if you speak more than one language. I got a couple in there. Raise your hand if you know like at least three words in another language. There we go. All right. So here's the thing about language translation. We, especially English speakers, like to think of language as like, this is the Spanish word for this, that everything is kind of a one-to-one -one thing. It's not. Um, language at its core is the translation of ideas. And biblical Hebrew and uh, Koine Greek are pretty, so some ideas become very hard to translate. So what do I mean? Well, in English we have this phrase, it's raining cats and dogs. All right? Now when it's raining cats and dogs, what does that mean? It's heavy rain. It's raining really hard. Yes. Now, in French, they, if you were to tell a French person it's raining cats and dogs, they would be horrified. They'd be looking like, holy, someone do something. 
They don't have that phrase, raining cats and dogs. They don't have that idiom. They have a different phrase, which frankly is incredibly horrifying to me as an English speaker. They say it's raining hatchets, which is terrifying. <laughs> so let's say you have a French poem that you're translating in English, and you get to that line, it's raining hatchets. How do you translate that to English? Now you can, yeah, you can choose to translate it directly. It's raining hatchets. And then you just have to trust that your English speaker understands that the idiom, it's raining hatchets, means it's raining hard. You can also, and that way you're preserving the words of the phrase. You can also choose to translate the idiom into a, a phrase that we say in English. So it's raining cats and dogs even though cats and dogs don't appear anywhere in the original text, but it communicates the idiom in the same kind of art artistry that it was originally intended. Or you could translate it as, it's really raining hard, which gets at the meaning, but you lose all the artistry of the, the colorful language. So which one of those is correct? They all are, okay? Um, that's why we have different translations of the Bible. Different translations, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the Contemporary English Version, the New Living Translation, even the King James Version, they're all translated from the original languages, and they're translated into English based on a set of criteria on how to translate those phrases to best convey the ideas to an English speaker. And then you run into the situation of, well, most of us, who here has ever used the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs in the last six months in your normal conversation? None of us. It's actually an older phrase. Now, who's ever said it's raining buckets? Like, I, that's what I say. Or it's a heavy rain. So then if you translate it into it's raining cats and dogs, then you're, talking to, you're translating into old English. Excuse me. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying. So when you're translating the Bible, you're translating it not from these different versions. You're actually translating it from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. But you're translating it into English using a set of criteria based on how to, how to say these concepts in a way that people can understand. And so if you're going to preserve the language, going to preserve the imagery of the Hebrew, you're going to get kind of more of the clunky translations like the... Um, NASB, New American Standard, or the ESV, which tend to be a little hard to read in English, but tend to preserve the structure of the sentences in Hebrew. Or if you want to translate them so that they're really easy to understand for English speakers, but don't necessarily follow the same structure as the Hebrew, you might translate it into a CEV or an NLT. Those translations try to, they're the ones that say it's raining cats and dogs. All right, they're the ones that are saying, they're preserving the idioms and trying to communicate easiest way for English speakers to hear, but they don't necessarily have the accuracy of the other translations. So which translation is correct? All of them. <laughs> that means if you're reading scripture and you get to a place that is uncomfortable or it's hard to understand, my advice to you, switch translations. Read the same verse in another translation. Switch from NIV to NLT. Switch from NLT to CEV. Read a whole bunch of different translations, and then you'll begin to get a better understanding of what the original text is trying to say. Okay? And actually, there's an app out there, YouVersion, 
It's a Bible app for your phone. You can quickly switch between a whole bunch of different versions and languages even. If you can read Portuguese, you can read the Bible in Portuguese and get an even better understanding of the original text. But check that out. So why are there so many translations of the Bible? Translation, that's why. Okay. The next question that I always get is, can we trust the Bible? And this one is interesting to me because obviously I'm a pastor, so I'm going to say yes. Um, in fact, I know this is a faux pas. I'm going to use scripture here to tell, tell you why you should trust scripture. But uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. I like those amens. Scripture is given to us for a reason. It's a plumb line. It's a, an anchor that holds our faith. Because in our, in our relationship with God, God can speak to us in a whole bunch of different ways. Often, we need something to line up that interaction with to make sure what we're hearing, what we're experiencing is truly God. And so scripture provides that context by reading through scripture, by getting an idea of who God is, you begin to, to build that relationship. And so, when you're in prayer or when you're in worship and you have this thought about God and you're like, oh wait, is that me or is that God? You can always reflect back on scripture. Scripture is your anchor. But it's also more than that. See, I get a lot of comments about how if the Bible can be trusted, if all of scripture is God-breathed, like, how can you trust the words that are in this book? It's 2,000 years old. 2,000 years of telephone. It had to have changed at some point, right? No. And this is what's crazy about Scripture. Um, who here has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? All right. This is why the Dead Sea Scrolls are amazing. The Dead Sea Scrolls was a, uh, um, on a, a collection of Bible texts from around the time of Jesus. So it's about 2,000 years old. And they were uh, preserved by a group of uh, Jewish followers at the time that were kind of a separationist sect of Judaism uh, called the Qumran Collective. And they lived out there, and they preserved all their texts, and they put all their texts away in these clay pots, buried them, and the world forgot about them for 2,000 years. And then in the 40s, we found them. And this is why this is amazing, because we have this chance to look at the text of our Old Testament as it was written down at the time of Jesus. And we can unfurl the scrolls and read all the books, because it's an entire collection of our Old Testament. We can read those books next to our modern understanding of Hebrew, and we can see if anything has changed. The craziest thing... Nothing changed. 2,000 years of history and tradition and nothing changed. There is no discernible difference between the words as they were written 2,000 years ago and the words as they are written in your Bible today. That is mind-blowing. In fact, that is so mind-blowing. You don't have that, that in, in our modern documents. There is more degradation 
when we reprint the Declaration of Independence into modern textbooks than there is in our Old Testament Bible. That's how crazy that is. That is a supernatural level of preservation in the word. You can be absolutely sure that when you read scripture, you are reading the words that were there when Peter was reading them, when Jesus was referring to them. You are reading the words that they had. We know that. Modern scholarship knows that, whether they're Christian or not. We know that. You absolutely can trust the words of Scripture. In fact, amen. In fact, the New Testament is the most attested to document in all of human history. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at, when you look at uh, ancient documents, often we don't have the original copies of it. Just we don't have the original copies of the New Testament. Um, But we don't have a lot of the original copies of some things. We don't have the original copies of Shakespeare's Hamlet. We don't. We have about 20 copies of Shakespeare's Hamlet that are around the time they were copied from the original. And from those 20 copies, we're able to say, yeah, this is what he wrote. The Iliad, which is considered the, one of the most authoritative texts in uh, a non-religious text in the world, the Iliad, which is Homer's uh, uh, poem about Troy, that has over 2,000 documents that people can refer to. But even the oldest document of the Iliad was written nearly 1,800 years after the original document would have been written down. The Bible, New Testament, the New Testament alone, not even counting the Old Testament, just the last third of the Bible, 25,000 documents that we have with the earliest documents within a generation of when they were written within a handful of years of when they were written, all right? The New Testament is the most attested to historical document in the world. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that the words of the Bible have not changed. The words of the Bible have not evolved over time. We've just merely taken that original text and we've translated it to different languages to create different versions. But we've always translated it from, from the authoritative text, from the, the Greek and the Hebrew. So you can absolutely trust that what you read is Scripture as it was 2,000 years ago. Now that doesn't mean, for those of you skeptics out there, or mean that everything uh, that you read, that's not, a, that's not an argument that says that it's true. I believe it's true. But I get the argument that New York can exist, but that doesn't mean Spider-Man exists. <laughs> because you're like, oh yeah, New York exists. So I get that argument. And I can't really touch base on that. All I can say is that faith, faith is needed to believe the ultimate structure of who God is. But you don't need faith. You don't need faith, believe it or not, to believe that the words in this book have not changed in 2,000 years. Amen. We actually have secular proof. We have outside the church proof. We have proof in scholarship. Scholars agree this book is the most attested to document in human history. You can be absolutely sure that what you read today, they were reading 2,000 years ago. Now question three, is the Bible still relevant? Yes! (laughs) 
Luke 16, verse 17 says, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for at least one stroke of the pen to drop from the law. Time does not change the meaning of scripture. You know, to my friend who was telling me that how can I trust the Bible because it's the Bronze Age guide to the galaxy, I would tell them this isn't about how to live in a Bronze Age. This book doesn't give you instruct, just give you instructions on how to shepherd. It doesn't just give you instructions on how to tax your populace. The themes in this book are as relevant today as they always have been. Nothing in the law changes over time. This book is as relevant today as it was yesterday, as it was 2,000 years ago. Because tell me when forgiveness is no longer a relevant topic to discuss. Tell me when grace, when love, when overcoming hate become obsolete topics. This book is so relevant. It is so trustworthy. It is so packed full of themes and informations and illustrations to show us what it means to be a grace-filled, loving community in a world that doesn't understand. It shows how the powerless can be lifted into places of power. It shows God chooses the broken to lead his people. Every biblical hero in all of creation has been a flawed human being that God has raised and put into a position that is way above his head, and yet God works through him. Every page of this book illustrates a deep love letter to God's people, showing how God, infinitely powerful, infinitely in control, loves us so deeply, so fully, that he comes into our world and forgives our mistakes. When is that not relevant? <laughs> when are people tired of hearing that they are loved? So when people ask me, is this, bio, is this book still relevant? Is this just the, the Bronze Age Guide to the Galaxy? Yes, it's still relevant. It's absolutely relevant. It's a book that shows us the nature and character of a loving God. It's amazing. And its level of preservation and level of words is, uh, sorry, level of, of, of I can't talk. <laughs> its level of, of information that's packed into these texts and uh, the ability to preserve the original words as they were meant to be written it's nothing short of mind-blowing. Even if you don't believe that God is real, even if you take that skeptic standpoint, you cannot cast aside this book as inconsequential. As I said, it is the most attested to document in human history. It is a story of grace and love and power as it was meant to be. This book has defined civilizations. It has caused movements. It has caused empires to be created and fall. Nothing has been more influential in human history than this. So even if you want to sit here and say that you doubt who God is or doubt that God exists, you have, you have to respect this.
So when we say it's time to lift our eyes, lift our eyes from the muck, lift our eyes from the distractions of this world, you have a window right here. You have a window right there into who God is. You have a window. It's an amazing supernatural window into the character and nature of God. Is it hard to understand at times? You bet, but it's worth the effort. It is fascinating beyond belief. You can spend a lifetime studying one verse and you will always find new realities in that space because the Bible is what we call infinitely complex. All right, infinitely complex. Infinite complexity is this idea that no matter how much you zoom in on a topic or how much you zoom in on, a, on an idea, that there's always more details to study, always more details to emerge. Okay? The Bible is infinitely complex because the God that it's talking about is infinitely complex. And us being created in the image of God are infinitely complex. This is a miracle on earth. It absolutely is. Because it provides you a window into an understanding that is beyond our comprehension. But it holds your hand the entire time and walks you through that reality. So, the Bible tells a relevant story about who God is and how he fiercely loves his people. Its words have supernatural staying powder, telling the same story for thousands of years throughout a myriad of contexts. And we have access to several different versions, each explaining the same story in a slightly different way, so that no matter how we understand language, we have the ability to interact with the living God through Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God is powerful. His word is powerful. The message of Scripture the message, the ultimate message of the story that he's given us in this book is that God, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, is, that, is our ultimate source of hope. That is the message in this book. That is what God wants you to know. Everything else in this book is unpacking what that reality means is that God, the maker of heaven and earth, the ultimate power in the universe, loves you and is your ultimate source of hope. So what does that mean for us going forward? In this world of distractions, in this world of, of constant uh, black and white uh, issues and being pulled from side to side and being, being asked to argue and weigh in and being distracted from the things that matter, we need to stop. We need to take a breath. We need to lift our eyes to see where hope really comes from.
And it comes from Jesus in the identity that he gives you. And it comes from the story of hope that God gives us in this book. Now, I know I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to say this, but it doesn't make it any less true. Read your Bible. (laughs) I mean, seriously. If you don't have a Bible, come talk to me. I will get you a Bible. All right? If you don't have a Bible that you like to read, come talk to me. I will get you a Bible that you like to read because this book is amazing. If you have a smartphone, you can get it for free. Go on to Uversion, uh, search for that on whatever store you get your apps, and you can get a, a version of the Bible for free in every version printed. It's amazing. Read your Bible. Interact with it. Chew on the words. Meditate on it daily. Lift our eyes out of the distraction and instead focus on our actual source of hope. And he tells you all about it right here. Let's pray. Dear Father God, you are good. You are amazing. You saw fit not only to to make us, to create us, to love us, to build us up, but you also saw fit to leave us a love letter about who you are. You left us a supernatural love letter that never degrades, that never becomes obsolete. And we live in an age where it's translated in every language we can conceive of, almost every language we can conceive of, and almost every way to speak those languages. We've never had more access than we do today to your word. And for that, we praise you and we thank you. God, make your word alive in us. Make your word shine in us. Make it shine to the core of us so that your word can be etched upon our heart. God, you are good. You are so good. We desire to follow you and to go where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.